Welcome back in listeners to another fabulous episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We are joined by an amazing power couple with a great new show. We have Terry Cranair, who is the writer, composer, and lyricist, and Rebecca Cranair, who's the producer of a new show called The Lincolns of Springfield. It is having its premiere June 15th through August 6th at the Peggy Ryder Theater at the Hoagland Center for the Arts in Springfield, Illinois. And you can get your tickets and more information by visiting the Lincolnsofspringfield.com. But more importantly, let us welcome Terry and Rebecca to Whisper in the Wings and Stage Whisper. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you you for having us. I'm very excited to learn more about this, the Lincolns of Springfield. I mean, the minute I saw the title, I was like, okay, Illinois, Lincolns, I know this guy, but you you (laughs) added the Lincolns, not Lincoln. So there's more than just Honest Abe, I feel like, going on here. Could could you guys tell us a little bit more about this show? You want to take it, Terry? Well, the whole first act of the show, I think, is, going to be a news to most people. When the show opens, it's Abe has just been elected president. And we have a storyteller because we, we have a large arc. And the storyteller is a woman that who's not widely known. She was a former slave. She bought herself out of slavery by earning money as a seamstress. Her name is Elizabeth Keckley. And she became Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker and lived in the White House for four years. In fact, she wrote a book called 30 Years of Slave and Four Years in the White House. And Lincoln has just been elected president. The opening number is called Cotton's No Longer King, as they're celebrating his election. But from that point for, uh, forward, it flashes back to the younger Mary Todd Lincoln and to the younger Abraham Lincoln. And it goes to Lexington, Kentucky, before the time that Mary is, is even out of finishing school. So uh, we have Mary Mary Todd, who's about 12 years old, and and her slave, she has a household slave who basically helps to raise her after after Mary's mother passed away at about six years old. And she has disclosed to her essentially surrogate mother, uh, Mammy Sally, that she is going to become a proper lady and marry a president and live in the White House. And this is at age 12. And we see we see her in the antebellum South in a in a well-to-do family and in the setting that she's raised in, which then is co- contrasted with Lincoln when we go to Sagamon County and he's living amongst the pioneers in Sagamon, you know, wearing a buckskin. And what we find out, what I think is fascinating is how the two get together. And I'll let Becky talk about that. Well, one of the most fascinating things about the story is that Mary, of course, comes from this very elite, socially high-class family from the South, and she is very, very well-educated. Most women at that time only got to learn about social skills, how to set the table properly, how to entertain properly, how to carry on a nice conversation. But Mary attended a school where there were also boys. So she got to learn about European history. She got to learn about mathematics. She got to learn about 
economics and things that women just never learned about in that particular time. And so she was someone who Abe really respected when he met her. It was this amazing thing to meet a woman who could carry on a conversation with a fellow who was like, even though he didn't have the kind of education that Mary had, the formal education, he was self-educated and very, very intelligent and, you know, read, read, read everything he could lay his hands on so that they had this this commonality of intelligence and knowledge that brought them together. And one of the things that I wanted to say about Mary as a young girl, and, you know, Terry mentioned how she had lost her mother at a very young age. And so you will commonly hear, oh, Mary was raised in a slave holding family, you know, and that that's a very derogatory thing. And she, her family had slaves. But the thing that nobody seems to know, or very few people know, is that in reality, the woman who actually raised her, who was named Mammy Sally, was very instrumental in uh, the Underground Railroad. And so she had Mary assisting her and the other household slaves with the Underground Railroad. And she really educated Mary in a way that caused her to understand the ugliness and the evilness of slavery, even though it was all around Mary and she was really embedded in that situation. But that didn't mean that Mary was in favor of it. And when she came of age, she moved from that home and she moved to Springfield, Illinois, where slavery was not legal. And that was where she actually met Abe at that time. So how did you two come up or come upon this story? I was raised in Southern Ohio, Southern Indiana. And so I was exposed to all of the Lincoln legends and going to the various Lincoln sites at an early age. And I had a, a friend whose dad was a history teacher at, at one of the high schools there. And it was just something that I became passionate about and wanted to, to write about and trying to write what you know. I was in the BMI workshop when Lehman Engel taught the BMI musical theater workshop. And, uh, you know, various people have come out of there of much Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, of course, came out of that workshop. And Ed Kleban, who wrote the lyrics for Chorus Line, very elite deal. And if you know, if you got if you got accepted, you you, you attended for free. But and when we attended, it, it was taught by Lehman Engel. And when I told Lehman I had this idea for an original musical about the Lincolns, not just Abe Lincoln, but about their relationship. You know, how is it that this unlikely couple comes together, her from the Antebellum South, him from the backwoods of Illinois, and to, to fate brings them together so that they are able to free a people and save a country. How, how does that happen? That's the story I wanted to tell. And I also wanted to put some flesh and bones on those characters so that people could appreciate the loss to the country that occurred when, when by the end of the story, of course, He's assassinated. And so they, uh, it was an original thought. Lehman's response was, Terry, if you're going to do an original musical before you can write My Fair Lady, you have to write Pygmalion. And I didn't understand exactly what he was saying at the time. <laughs> I was 
but uh, I spent years doing the research well before the internet and uh, meeting with Lincoln scholars at, at the Huntington Library in California. And as I did the research, I would I would say there's a certain amount of just inspiration because I stumbled onto different things, and and one of them being Mrs. Keckley, who could be the storyteller that could take care of that large arc that we were dealing with, and then found out these fascinating things. I mean, everybody seemed to know that Abe's mother had died and he had this great stepmother, but nobody seemed to know that Mary lost her mom six, you know, when she was only six. Abe was nine when he lost her. So they had that in common as well. And the as Becky likes to say, truth is stranger than fiction. As the research unfolded, you, you found out how they, they did make this route. You know, in the movies, they would call it a cute meet. But her older sister, Elizabeth, had moved to Springfield and married the son of the governor of Illinois. And she invites Mary to come to, to her home. And they're having a cotillion. And Abe, in the meanwhile, has become an attorney and is a law partner. His first law partner was John Todd Stewart. And he was a cousin of Elizabeth and Mary. And so there's this cotillion, it's a very cute scene, where they, they first meet and, and Abe is, is frightened to death because he doesn't, doesn't really know how to dance. And of course, she's a very great dancer. And in fact, she says to her sister later that he, he said he wanted to dance with her in the worst way. And she says, I have to admit, he certainly did. So the story is an original story. Sarah, let me uh, jump in here for a minute. Yeah, go ahead. I want to tell you a little bit about when he was writing and I was kind of watching this take place. And he he was very knowledgeable about Abe Lincoln before he even started writing at all. But when he started writing, he was he was studying and researching very intensely and I found that he, what he would do is he would like study, 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 research, research, research. And then he would write a scene and write a musical number. And then he would take it over to the scholars at the Huntington Library. And they they had a whole wing of scholars over there. We lived about a mile away. So that was really great for this whole writing process. And what I learned during that time was that there are so many people who are Lincoln lovers and who are Lincoln aficionados and Lincoln scholars. And they really know this story inside out, upside down and backwards. They know it. And if you say anything or write anything that is just the slightest bit off, they will let you know about it. <laughs> they will call you out, you know? And so he was like really very scrupulous you know, creating a script and music and everything that was really historically accurate. And and that's where, you know, this truth is stranger than fiction came to me. I'm just like, he would tell me things and I would go, you're kidding me. Because it's like so far, what the truth is, is so far off from the, the stories and legends that have come up throughout the years. So it's been really fascinating for me. And, and I love the fact that it's we can say this is absolutely truthful. We didn't we didn't take any historical license with this show. Everything that you see is truthful, and I think that that gets, is very powerful thing for the show. Like who, how many people know that Mary's very best friend from the time that she got to Washington D.C. was a former enslaved person? 
Very few people know that. But for Mary, that was normal. That was normal because, you know, she grew up with the the former slaves from her household and they were her family. She loved them. And so, you know, she was like completely non-racist. You know, she was just a really good person when it came to that sort of thing. And it was kind of tough for her. Like if she went shopping with Elizabeth, that was, you know, that's not okay. That was not acceptable. But she just felt like, this is my friend and this is what I do, you know? And I think that being able to tell that story is like, is really important. And also in terms of her character, she, you you find out that she really married for love, that she, she, when she, this first time that she met him, she, she was falling in love with him. And her sister, Elizabeth, who had married well, marrying the son of the governor, was aghast that she would even consider a match with, with Abe Lincoln and the family served to, to break them up. So, I mean, they, they got together, they had, it, it has the, the, they, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And in fact, when he, I can't, when I talk about it, I can't believe it sometimes myself, but when they finally get back together and she's telling him that, that these social things that she's trying to teach him, like what fork to use and what clothes to wear, are, are important to her and to the people that are going to vote for him. And he's saying, vote for me. What are you talking about? She said, I'm talking about you being the president of the United States. And she says, I'm not fit. She goes, there's no one more fit. And so this, she saw in him what other people didn't see. And he realizes how much she does love him. And, and he's, he, he's, he's in love with her. So she said, he, he said, let's get married then. And she said, well, not on a long engagement. And he said, well, how about today? And she said, today. And and then what they get married that very day. She borrows a dress from her sister. Abe goes around and, and invites a few close friends and relatives, and they get married at the at the Edwards ho- uh, home in, in Springfield. And and it has the, the the end of the first act is great because when he first meets her, there's a waltz called when you love someone because Mary wanted to know, ask her teachers, you taught me all of these things, but how do you know when you love someone? And it's a great number. The teacher at the finishing school, Madame Mantel, sings it. And then it segues into the actual waltz at the mansion. And then at the tag of the, uh, the first act, they're singing, they're exchanging their vows by a number called together me and you. And then at the very end, uh, he, he asked her to dance. Says that he wants to dance with. He says, "Mrs. Lincoln, will you dance? I want to dance with you in the worst way." And they they're doing the dance, and the ensemble uh, then segues into a, a reprise of "When You Love Someone," and that's the how the first act ends. And then the second act is them up close and personal with, against the background of the war. Oh, I love all that. Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. <laughs> So what has it been like developing this show? Okay, it's been a lot of time and work. We've done, you know, several workshops and we did a an equity reading in New York. And then we did another workshop and a concert in Pasadena at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, which was really successful. And then we did a run in Santa Barbara last October. 
And now we're coming to Springfield and we're doing the run here. So it's been, it's been great. You know, I'm really, really, really excited about coming to Springfield and it's, it's really fun to be there for us. You know, it's, we're both from the Midwest and we've both been there before, but now that we really have studied Abe and Mary and their life and everything, it's so fun to go and, and see these different places you know, for instance, the house where they lived, they lived in Springfield for 20 years before they went to Washington, D.C., and their house is still there. And it's a, a really big tourist site place for people come to see because, you know, he's America's best loved president. Everybody loves Abe, you know, and, and they want to see that. And people want to bring their children to, you know, see the, the Lincoln sites in Springfield. His office is there. And they have a wonderful museum there and a library. It's it's really great, you know. And so we've been really excited about doing the show. And it's it's going to be with, you know, like immersive theater is a big deal now. So we're doing it in an immersive sense where people can come and they have like a state, a White, White House state dinner that is then followed by the show after that. So it's kind of nice for, you know, for locals, but also for tourists and people who are coming in that want to do something really special and really grand and exciting. You know, it's 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 really a fun place. The, the theater that we're, we're giving the performance in is one where it was the same day, I think in the evening, that he announced, Obama announced that he was going to be running for president. And then later in the evening, he gave a speech at this theater too, and so that's that's kind of a a neat side note for the um, for the theater too. Yeah. Yeah. He actually he announced at the at the old state capitol, which has been renovated, and and then had his, his, this the the after party or whatever you want to call it at the Hulkland Theater. In fact, that the the owner of the theater, the, the person who runs the theater, said they. They had asked the fire marshal to allow a couple hundred extra people in uh, when Obama was there. In fact, we had an amazing evening with everyone has welcomed us with open arms. And they're so happy and thrilled to have in the historic section of Springfield something that will attract people in the evening. And so that, you know, they run around to the historic sites during the day. And then when they're exhausted, they can, you know, grab something to eat and and see this show at night. And so, you know, they they have just totally embraced the show. The people are are so so nice here. We're just they're they're all just lovely people. And and then they, they've been surprised because of course they all consider themselves to be somewhat Lincoln scholars themselves because they had the tourism department. And, and, and as the as as we tell them this the story that we're telling it, they're saying wow, I never knew that. Or, you know, so it's kind of fun that even the people in Springfield are going to learn more about the Lincolns than, than they, they thought, you know, they thought they already knew. That's because the story of their romance has never been told that we know of, right? It's just like, this is like new, new information. And I think that it's, it's really fun and charming. And I think people will really enjoy that. It's in a sense, it's, it's sort of like into the woods in the, in the sense that, you know, the whole first act is, is pretty much the setup for the second act and where the second act is kind of 
you know, it suddenly turns dark or whatever it right. is. Not that it's dark, but you you get you get to know them as a couple in the first act, and then when then the second act is where you now you have two ordinary people dealing with extraordinary circumstances, and who who have to rise above the all the tragedy that that is occurring around them. Uh, not only the the war, but uh, as you may know, they they had lost one son when they lived in Springfield. And then they lose another boy while they're they're in the White House, and all the time Mary is spouting, uh, repeating some of the superstitions that she learned from the from Mammy Sally, who the black woman who helped to raise her, and one of which was you should never do anything on a Friday. That's an unlucky day, making reference, I think, to to the crucifixion of of Christ. That you shouldn't do anything on a Friday. In spite of that, she wanted to marry him so bad that day that that they decided to get married the same day that that he proposes what turned it was a friday and she hesitates but they end up getting married on that friday and of course at the at the close of the show they're going to the theater as everybody knows and that happens to be good friday so you know the and the the sunday after that was is known uh, commonly as black easter after he was assassinated so these superstitions the other one was Mammy Sally would scold her and say, you know, that you put salt in Mammy's coffee today and the jaybirds are going to go down and talk to the devil and let them know about all your mischief. And that if a, if a bird ever lands on a windowsill of a house, it means death is coming to that house. And in the second in that second act, uh, she's giving that speech to her kids. And one of them sees a bird or thinks he sees a bird on the windowsill. And she's Mary's always afraid that was Abe's going to be killed, and but as it turns out, a couple of scenes later, you find out that Willie died. So that those themes carry through the the second act. But it, it is really, I think, it's a roller coaster ride. I I like to compare a well-written musical, Space Mountain at Disneyland. One time I was there when the, it broke down and all the lights came on, and you could see all the tracks and all that stuff. And to my feeling way of thinking a good musical should be like a roller coaster ride you know it has its ups and downs and and uh and fun parts and scary parts and but when you turn the lights off you don't see all the structure and the craft that went into this roller coaster ride of a of a good musical and for for instance one of the things that layman taught us was what he called it his theory of emotional opposites and if you wanted to make somebody laugh what he thought called a comedy song you had to laugh out loud that you would find a tragic moment in the show or in the story to, to write about so you know lucille ball's going to a dance and she's got but she goes bowling that afternoon now she's got a bowling ball stuck on her hand but she's going to a dance and so it's tragic for her but it's funny for us right as a, as the observer with regard to trying to move people to tears that you never allow your your main characters to delve into self-pity. They always have to rise above the situation. And so in this case, Abe has his coming-of-age song, his what we call the I Want song in the first act, is to, to, to seek his destiny and, and, uh, and, and go find his place in, in the future. And in those days, they would say, when you could hear your neighbor's shotgun, it was time to move on. And then... If you ask them, well, where are you going to go? 
they would say uh, over yonder. So the title of this of this this romantic song that he's talking about and this great place he's going to go to when he as he says goodbye to his parents is she's his mom asks him where's where are you going to go and she's he's over yonder. And what happens at the end of the show then is that after he is killed, there's a there's one funeral dirge song called "Bind Up the Nation's Wounds," and then immediately following that, they're ready to go to the funeral. And she says, Ted asked his mother, he said, you know, please don't don't cry, Mama. You know, Papa's with Willie and they're in a better place and they wouldn't want us to be so sad. She then comes to the, you know, to to her boy and says, you're right, Ted, he wouldn't want us to be so sad. And you go with Mrs. Keckley and I'll be there shortly. And then Ted asks his mother, he says, we will see Papa and Willie again, won't we, Mama? And she says, of course we will someday. And the last thing he says, well, where is heaven, Mama? What's it like there? And then she sings the reprise of Over Yonder that Abe sang in the first act. And it's pretty emotional. People, it's 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 powerful. Uh, it's it's positive, but but it's very emotional at the same time. I love that. What is the message or thought you're hoping the audiences will take away from this show? Well, it's pretty much what I said earlier. I, I wanted people to have an appreciation and an understanding of who these people really were. I mean, they're just flesh and blood like like you and me, right? And how and, and to to get to know them and and that so that they would then correspondingly get a sense of the loss that the country experienced when, when he was taken away prematurely. And I, I think because it's a musical, you know, when I first started going people, I was writing a Lincoln musical and they're picturing, you know, tap dancing Abe, like, uh, you know, our commercial during the president's day sale. <laughs> uh, so, but I think that what does happen is, and he doesn't tap dance, by the way, what does happen is the music takes this story to a place that no novel or academic piece of work or a documentary can take that those emotions and 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 it serves to bring those emotions and i think people really really begin to understand and and get a, a sense of what it was like rebecca what about you as the producer of the show what is the message or thought you're hoping people will take away? I'm also an educator. I was principal of a K through 12 art school for several years. And so the educational aspect of the show is really important to me that this is a enjoyable way for young people to really learn about Abe Lincoln and his life, which is really important. I think also what I really hope is that when people see this show, they think a lot about how our lives are so much the same right now. And and what can we take away from that? There's a tune in the show that is so powerful that is sung by Abe's valet, William. It's called Bind Up the Nation's Wounds. And it just, boy, are we ever in a point right now where we need to bind up our nation's wounds and where we need to work together as a country. And I really hope that people are able to take that message away with them. I love that. 
My final question for this first part of the interview is who do you hope have access to the show? And Rebecca, if I can stay with you for the first part of this. Well, I hope that people will bring their children. I really hope that. And we, you know, it's a family show. There's not a single cuss word in the show. (laughs) And it's something that is, you know, very educational. The music is beautiful. The story is beautiful. It's a really enlightening, wonderful show. And I really hope that people see it as something that the family will do together and where they will learn a lot about our 16th president. Yes. And Terry, as the writer, composer, lyricist, who do you hope have access to the show? Well, I would hope that, and echoing her to some extent, Becky, that it is going to be a family show that the whole family enjoys. I would like to to, to eventually see the the show go to New York and and go to Ford's Theater. There's a there's a novelist that that I like. Her name is Nancy. I think it's Nancy Goldstone. Yeah, that's right, Nancy Goldstone. She she has written historical novels with some fiction or not, but she is a saying that history makes more sense when you put the women back in. And I know in speaking with Steve Schwartz, and sometimes I attend the ASCAP musical theater workshop, that he thinks some of the success of Wicked is is due to the fact that it has two strong female leads. And I think that, I hope that that demographic, which is a popular demographic on Broadway, that, that middle-aged women, older women and men as well, will, will learn that to put away all these derogatory things about Mary Todd and realize that, as Mrs. Keckley said, it, it would be doubtful perhaps that he he had ever become president without, without Mary. And I, I would hope that that whole demographic will learn that, that you know, in those days, the, we talk about slavery, but women were still considered to be chattel, personal property. And I, I'm I'm hoping that people across the board will have access to it. And I don't, I'm not sure where it goes. I'm just letting, you know, fate lead us uh, to where, where it should be. the second part of this interview i want to ask the two of you what composers playwrights or shows inspire you or do you love and terry if i can stick with you for the first part of that i grew up on rogers and hammerstein Werner and low i love the the big musicals and recently somebody brought to my attention might have been becky but somebody had posted something on broadway world or somewhere how minimalist Broadway has become, and, and a lot of it I know is, is due to budget constraints, and you you don't see so many of the big shows, the, the Mames and the Hello Dollies, and 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 even La Caja Fall, those those big high production shows, and so this this show I don't believe needs high production, 
I think it stands alone on its own. It could be on a bare stage with, you know, black curtains uh, in the background. But I am influenced by large production numbers. Of course, I was a Steve Sondheim fan and and then uh, a big Jerry Herman fan. I, I liked his comedy. And I know when he when he got the Tony for La Caja Fall, he was saying, you know, there seems to be a rumor that a hummable, funny tune. Well, you know, show tune is dead. Yeah, hummable show tunes are, are you know, passe. And of course, it's they're alive and well at the is, palace. <laughs> yes. And so this this show is filled with hummable tunes. In fact, at, at the concert in Pasadena, Ford's Theater sent a representative and we did we got to speak ahead of time, but not after. And so he sent me an email and he said, he said, Well, I didn't I couldn't catch up with you because you were everybody was crowded around you. But he said, I, I guess you missed me humming over, over yonder as I was going out. And 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 the lady next to me saying, Well, I guess when you go out humming the songs, that's a pretty good sign. So uh, <laughs> I'm I'm in favor of commercial theater with you know some some humble tunes absolutely in fact we we tend to use the term earworm on our show but more more than often than not we literally refer to that acceptance speech by jerry herman rebecca <laughs> what inspires you he stole all my material <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why we get along so well we agree on these things so much you know we agree like, on the important things that's exactly right yeah yeah <laughs> I grew up, you know, with Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe. I loved all those shows, always have. Love the big musicals, love the costumes, love all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, those are my favorites. <laughs> First musical I ever saw was The Music Man. And that was in, I was born and lived in Davenport, Iowa till I was about 10. So I was about seven when I saw that show and it was like, oh, such an eye opener to me. It's like, oh, I want to do that. I changed my whole life, changed my whole life. And after I was 10, we moved out to California and I started auditioning for shows. I did all kinds of musicals for, I lived in Silicon Valley. San Jose. They have a really good uh, theater community there. And I got a lot of training and then I went down to LA and I did a lot of shows around LA and stuff. That was a great show. Too. <laughs> so glad you liked it. I was waiting for her to talk about Music Man because it, it did have such a big influence uh, on her and also influence on me because I felt like it was okay to write book, music, and lyrics on a show. And it, and I think in terms of, of great composers, uh, you know, and writer, writers of musical theater, that I have a special place in my heart for Meredith Wilson to have put together his genius to put together the book, the music, the lyrics on that show, which is probably the reason that it, it, it did win the Tony. So... Well, touching on that, have either of you seen any great theater lately you might be able to recommend to our listeners? We what saw uh, The Secret Garden in L.A. recently. That was very good. That was really great. Yeah. What is your favorite part about working in the theater? And Rebecca, let me start with you on that one. What I really like about the theater is all the teamwork that goes into it. It seems to me... Yeah. 
like when I was teaching theater, I would always say to the the students that every single person is just as important as the next person. Nobody is more important. If you have more lines, that doesn't make you more important than somebody who has a small part. That small part is every bit as important. And it doesn't matter if you're selling tickets in the box office or you're hanging the lights or you're making the costumes, whatever you're doing, it's really, really, really important. I love that message to give to kids. Um, a lot of of students of theater, they call themselves theater nerds because they're not really into sports or what have you. They're into theater, but they learn teamwork through theater, which is so important. You know, as they grow up, they need to be able to work as a team. And so they get that, that education through working with in a theater production. And um, when I taught theater, it was, you know, it was at a high school and it was really a blast because we would, all the sports kids would want to do it. You know, they would come in and go, I want to do that, you know? And so it was really great that the jocks and the theater nerds got to be friends and live happily ever after. And <laughs> that was a, a great, great experience for all of them. Karen, <laughs> what is your favorite part about working in the theater? I just like working with all the different personalities. I when I was a, I got my theater degree at Indiana University, and at that time, Howard Ashman was working on his masters, and he he his first original musical was The Snow Queen, and he and I were both writing at the same time. I wasn't really writing musical theater then; I was writing more pop rock kind of stuff. But uh, I palled around with Howard and his partner, Stuart, and we had a, our own little group. With IU didn't have a formal musical theater program then like they do now. And we would go off campus and do tap lessons and everything else together. He asked me if I would stage manage the, the Snow Queen for him and play a, a couple cameo roles, which I did. And then, you know, afterwards, we both ended up going to New York and with other friends. You know, I as working as a stage manager, I, I loved it because my work study job was to take care of all the lighting equipment at the theater. And I saw I got to know all the tech people. And of course, I knew some bunch of the actors as well. And there's always a like I thought it was funny when you, you were she was talking about what what two groups were you said were the rival groups, Becky and that um in in the in the musical where you're talking about it escapes me but when you said it i thought oh yeah the farmers and the cowboys can be friends oh, right. <laughs> so the, the techies and the actors can be friends i i i, I love being able to um, mm -hmm. to work both sides of that and experience both sides of that and i and i actually i think after that i was asked to stage manage main by uh one of the professors and I, I didn't want to get trapped in, 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 in being a stage manager, but I think I had the right personality for it that they recognized. And I, I love working with it all. To me, when I, when I go into a theater, especially, especially I love the smell of the sawdust and the, you know, the roar of the grease paint, if you will. To, to me, it's like being at church. I, 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 just, uh, I just love just being there. Yes, could not agree more with that. And that is a perfect lead into my favorite question to ask guests, which is, what is your favorite theater memory? And Terry, I'd love to start with you on this one. Well, this is going way back, and I, I don't know, it's sort of a childhood memory, but when I was uh, about maybe eight years old, I was singing in the church choir, 
in, in Cincinnati, and they came through the the, the Metropolitan Opera would draw its boys' chorus from from the local churches. And so I got selected to be in the Cincinnati Summer Opera and the Botanical Gardens and all that. One a vivid memory that I that I recall is rehearsing in the hot summer heat at the amphitheater with a dress rehearsal and you know, and the opera stars with their with their heavy costumes. And one particular number where the the leading tenor is singing some high aria and they kept stopping it and stopping it and and it finally about the third time he had this big goblet and he just dropped it on the stage and kicked it and it went flying past the the, the the orchestra and the conductor and that was the end of the rehearsal for the day and i got to, i got to find out the sense of what it means to be a metropolitan star <laughs> when they say temperament like a metropolitan star and i i've never seen that since then but it, that was a vivid memory that that stuck with me and i uh, to this day it's one of the things that i see in the chain of things in my life i have a, another musical that i've i've written that's a is an adaptation of Jean Ennui's Waltz of the Toreadors. Mine is titled "When the When the Fat Lady Sings," and I all that stuff clear back to the opera because in that in, in that show, the wife there's a general who's retiring and he has a wife who was a former opera star, and so and and now they're at the end of their lives, and so it, it, there's a double play on when the fat lady sings, what happens at the end of, of, of your life? And also because she had been an opera singer with that. And she, her big number is me, 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 me. <laughs> She's her narcissistic reliving of, of her life. And so way back to then, those days when I saw that goblet being kicked off the stage and almost strike the conductor, uh, that I think that's one of my favorite memories. Love that. <laughs> Rebecca, what about you? What is uh, your favorite? Well, I have a lot of I have a lot of really fun memories from being a performer and a singer in in different shows that are are really really fun. I really 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 enjoyed that. But the the, the one that really sticks out for me, I was in the audience, and this was like the craziest thing. Nobody, I, I mean, it, this. <laughs> truly truly happened that we were we were seeing fiddler and it was in a new theater in santa clarita california the theater had just opened so it had been built in what had been like a a country farm area and so they had had a problem with rodents and rats and and so everybody knew it everybody knew that and so when when i went there i was like thinking oh my gosh i did i hope a mouse doesn't run over my feet or anything in the you know in, in this in my seat but i didn't have anything like that but what happened was when the three girls came out to sing matchmaker they came out and right above them on the 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 lighting the bat uh, yes came out three rats. No! With, seriously. And then they stopped when the girls stopped. And then the girls would move to the left and they'd move to the left. And the girls would move to the right and they'd move to the right. And they were like that. And the audience was in just roaring with laughter. And the poor girls were like, what's, they had no idea what was going on. 
<laughs> finally, one of the rats fell off and fell down right in front of the girls <laughs> and ran into the into the pit. Orchestra. And the rat goes down into the pit. It's like oh. all the musicians are going, oh, no, everything. It was just like hilarious. The other rats took off. The, the girls finished their number. But I'll never forget that as long as I live. <laughs> so oh, oh. I mean, I can understand why that's funny. I mean, that's that's a Disney movie waiting to be made, but I don't do rats. I don't even live in New York. I don't do that. Oh, oh, oh. Nonetheless, nonetheless, nonetheless. Thank you both for sharing those memories. I appreciate it. You were right, Rebecca. That is probably the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> for sure, you were going to tell. The Romeo and Juliet story of when you were at San Jose State. Oh, that was just about as bad, too. Romeo rolled onto his knife, and so the Juliet couldn't get to the knife. And so then she strangled herself on stage. <laughs> I mean, oh, happy hands. She, she got the job done, uh, right? She said, oh, happy hands. <laughs> as she's <laughs> That's thinking on your feet. That is cool. <laughs> oh happy dagger, whatever it is. Oh happy right. right. Oh my god. Oh yeah. Okay, that's great. That's great too. <laughs> Are there any other productions or projects that either of you have coming on the pipeline we might be able to plug? Fat lady. It, yeah, the fat lady is a you know it's a Jean Ennui uh, farce that takes place in like 1910. That that show is in the can. We're we're just doing some negotiating with regard to first class rights and all of that. And I I, I mentioned how um, I think I did. I I have a another historic show on Joan of Arc, and it's an adaptation of a little known novel by Mark Twain called I think it's called, it's called Saint Joan. And Twain considered that to be his greatest work. He went, he, he's, I'm, I'm as crazy as he is, I guess, because he went to, or he's crazier than me. He went to France and researched that that novel for 12 years before he began to write it. And he considered it his greatest work, and most people have never heard of it. So I have a, an adaptation of that. I After all those, the work that I put in on, onto Lincoln, I realized Lehman was right, and I wasn't going to write too many original musicals so um i do have one other one that's kind of a romp and it's more of a cabaret show i'd like to do it like a 54 below one of one of these days it's uh, it's called pinocchio in tinseltown that is it's more of a cabaret show but it's very fun we'll have to keep our eyes for that if our listeners want more information about the lincolns of springfield or about either of you maybe they'd like to reach out to you how can they do that through our website, they can they can reach either of us, or you know just find out more information. There's a, a email there that they can email us, the Lincolns of Springfield at gmail.com. That's there too. Perfect. Well, Terry, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and to our listeners today about this incredible show. Truly, congratulations. It sounds amazing. I I cannot wait to see it. I'm sure it's going to make its way out here to New York, and I cannot wait to see it. So thank you so much. 
Oh, thank, thank you. you. It's really fun. <laughs> My guests today have been Terry and Rebecca Cranair, who are the writer, composer, lyricist, and producer of the new show, The Lincolns of Springfield, which is playing June 15th through August 6th at the Peggy Ryder Theater at the Hoagland Center for the Arts in Springfield, Illinois. Tickets and more information can be found at the Lincolnsofspringfield.com, but make sure you visit that for your tickets after the 15th of April. That's when they go on sale. But you can definitely visit that site before then to check out videos and reviews, as well as reach out to our guests. They have their email on there as well. And make sure you get your tickets to this exciting show. It's going to make its way out here. It sounds incredible. It's got simple, hummable show tunes in there. And it's got an amazing story that's long overdue to be told. So make sure you see the Lincolns of Springfield. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. Your stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. <laughs>